0: Greetings comrades and welcome to the inaugural episode of Chatter in the Skull which is my new political and current event show and if you've been following my updates you guys know that I have been itching to do more political content on this channel political political content on this channel has been a mainstay for quite some time and I've been eager to get back into it after I actually did a couple of political streams which in my opinion went very well and I enjoyed them immensely and it gave me this sort of great epiphany that, you know, I have to talk about politics. I won't be happy if I'm not talking about politics. And lo and behold, this came the inspiration for the show. And here we are today. So in case you don't know about me, most people you probably do know about me. Um, you guys know that I am a left-leaning guy. Um, very unabashedly left-leaning guy. Uh, I definitely consider myself a socialist. If I'm being a little cheeky, I, I will sometimes call myself a socialist libertarian. And the reason I, I do that is because, well, of course, you know, as socialists believe, I do believe the collective of society comes before the individual. That being said, I think individual rights and collective rights aren't mutually exclusive all the time. And in fact, there are a lot of times where there are not. And in times when there aren't they aren't mutually exclusive or sometimes they can even benefit each other. I think it's definitely not um, advisable to throw away and travel on those kind of individual rights. There's no real reason to, unless again, they come into conflict with the greater sort of um, collective will and collective need of society. So yeah, I've been a left-leaning guy pretty much all my life. Back when I started this channel, I used to be a lot more left-leaning, like fire-breathing radical. Age and kids have kind of tempered me a little bit, but that being said, I still very comfortably identify myself in that socialist camp. So yeah, what's the show going to look like exactly? Let me give you guys the kind of rundown for what my vision for the show is going to be. First off, we're going to talk about various political and current events. Today I have three topics that I want to cover. First is Russian mobilization and the current Ukrainian counteroffensives. Second is the recent election in Brazil. And third is sort of a midterm, state of the midterms as we come up to that big election next month in the United States. And of course, the main part is to give my analysis and um, breakdown of what exactly is going on and what I think about these topics. And then the second part I wanna do is kind of respond to people that are on the opposite side of the political spectrum and what they think about these kind of issues. I think that, especially here on YouTube, the right wing has gotten away with not a lot of counter-commentary and I hope to and intend to change that with the show. And one of the big kind of uh, turning points for me and what inspired me to do the show is that there's kind of been like a, a shift in the way that I view uh, conservative content. And I have what I call a roster. It's like a roster of, of uh, conservative content creators that I think are probably the most influential in that sphere that I occasionally check in on and see exactly what they're talking about. And there's been a kind of shift in this uh, in this area, at least for the way I view them. And that is, you know, I used to view them and kind of like get angry or whatever. But now these days when I watch these people, it's like I find myself laughing. <laughs> like I feel like there's been kind of a jumping the shark moment for conservatism uh, recently. And it has opened the door to endless amounts of mockery and ridicule. And on a sort of personal level, I'm having a great deal of fun roasting these people and roasting their perspectives. And on and I guess it could have stopped there if what they were saying wasn't so friggin' dangerous, but we'll get to that when we get to it. And Before I talk about what the last segment for the show is, I do want to say to the right-leaning comrades out there, and I know you were out there, and I know you've watched this channel, you've talked to me, you've commented to me before, and to you guys I want to say is my, my job isn't here, isn't to come up here and disparage fellow members of the working class. That's not what I want to do. I want to take aim at the intellectual thought leaders of conservatism right now and the right-wing movement. And if you take personal offense to me roasting these people, well, you know, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do for your sensibilities beyond this point. Just know, like I said, I don't hold any personal animosity towards right-wingers as individuals or as ordinary people. And the last segment that I want to have for the show is a sort of viewer and comment section where I can kind of go over questions, comments that people have sent to me, and we can maybe do more of a broader sort of rapid fire kind of session on those topics. Obviously, considering this is the first episode, we're not gonna have that. We're just gonna have this little intro. Though going forward, I'm definitely going to try and bring more and more of that into the mix. My goal right now is to make this a weekly show. I'm hoping to increase the frequency and I've got a pretty good, I think, setup here where I can kind of, once I've got my system, I can I can start to really just sit down and talk and be able to work things out pretty easily. And I'm hoping to increase the frequency of the show as time goes on. But right now, I think once a week is very doable and reasonable for me. And with the introductions out of the way, let us get into the first topic today, and that is Russian mobilization and the ongoing war in Ukraine. And today, I want to look at Russian mobilization sort of through the lens of the internal divisions that this is exacerbating within Russia and how, if things continue the way they are, there's a very good chance that these internal divisions could break and fracture the entire Russian state and put the Russian project into jeopardy in a sense that we've never seen before. And to do that, I want to introduce you guys to the small internal republic within Russia, and that is the Republic. Baratya. So I'm sure some of you are wondering, what the hell is Baratya? Well, Buryatia, as I mentioned before, is an internal republic within the Russian Federation, which is centered in the Eastern Siberian zone, right uh, above the border of Mongolia here. If we zoom in, we can see that it borders the wonderful and beautiful lake of Lake Bacal and this is one of the lakes actually I'm, I'm really hoping to one day visit in my lifetime apparently it's quite beautiful if we can actually pull our little guy here see if we can get a good view yeah just looks incredible looks absolutely amazing and I hope like I said one day I can visit this area but you know that's neither here nor there also um. Speaking of neither here nor there, apparently this lake has seals that live in it, and it's the only lake in the world where freshwater seals live. But again, just useless trivia, and we're not here to talk about the interesting wildlife of the region, nor its rugged naturalistic beauty. What I do want to talk about instead is how this little republic has been leveraged currently for the conflict in Ukraine, by a magnitude that the other oblasts in russia apparently are not even close to experiencing so according to reports casualties from conscripts and recruits from this area exceed five times the average of other areas in russia and not only is this region particularly poor as there's not a lot of sort of economic activity here and economic uh, opportunity outside of maybe sort of resource extraction and that kind of stuff But this area happens to be home to a substantial ethnic minority population within Russia. So who are these ethnic minorities? Well, let's take a look at the Wikipedia here very quickly and we're going to scroll down learn all the wonderful things about this Republic. But that's not what we're here to see. What we are here to see is this little section right here, the ethnic groups. And unfortunately we don't have any information beyond the 2010 census. Hopefully we'll have a new census soon so we can get more data. But that being said, let's break down the numbers here. And as you can see, the primary ethnic group here is called the Burats, which are an ethnicity related to the Mongols. And they make up, well, they used to make up almost 50% of the Republic back in 20, excuse me, 1926. And then over time, that amount decreased until 1959 which started picking up again and now in 2010 we can see that Burats make up a full 30% of the population of this Republic and I'd imagine given the rate that things have been increasing it might not be implausible to say that they are reaching upwards of 35% now and while we haven't really seen any full-scale protests or anything like that out of this region, we have been hearing reports of people getting upset and noticing the fact that there seems to be a lot more people not coming back from this conflict than there is going to the front lines. And in the information age, even in a place like Russia, you cannot control people sharing information so people will know what things are like in other parts of Russia in comparison to their own. And I think it'd be fair to say that the Burati people are feeling like they're being unfairly leveraged for this conflict. And speaking of a people who feel like they're being unfairly leveraged for this conflict, let's go to another republic which is very vocally announcing the fact that they are unfairly being leveraged. What you are looking at here, comrades, this is the Republic of Dagestan, yet another republic within the borders of Russia, a nom- you know, nominally not not exactly autonomous but they do enjoy a little bit more flexibility in their governments than other regions and as you can see right here it's uh, in the northern part of the Caucasus so it borders the Chechen region in the Caucasus region and it happens to be one of the areas of Russia which is predominantly Muslim in religion and not only that it has very very few ethnic Russians who actually live there and we know that A lot of people from this region are being recruited for this conflict because the region has a notorious reputation for producing hard mother effers. If any of you guys follow UFC, uh, Dagestan is the region where UFC legend and, in my opinion, genuine superhuman Habib Nagayedov is from. And whenever I think of somebody from Dagestan, let me tell you, this right here (laughs) is exactly what I'm thinking of. Just some... Tough son of a bitch, beating the crap out of somebody. So yeah, it makes sense that you'd want to get as many of them in your army as you possibly can. But it also makes sense that you don't exactly want these guys working against you. And these are people who, if pushed hard enough, will certainly push back. Here I've got a video of a protest going sideways against mobilization in Dagestan. This is from a couple weeks ago. And what you're about to see is something that...
1: Everybody
0: so yeah, I hear the fire once. No change. Again, people starting to move a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you can see. <laughs> he's like, fire. Then people start to move. Finally, right. It's, uh, but buddy's firing a machine, or firing a an AK variant right in your freaking ear. Let's just go back. There. I want to see how close was that guy to that dude's ear. Like, holy crap! Look at that. Like that guy. Geez, that guy's definitely going. Uh, he's going deaf for a little bit. That's for sure. But this doesn't really happen often in Russia because protests are very. You know, they're criminalized or cracked down upon. So going to a protest is dangerous, not to mention clashing with police like this is dangerous. And people wouldn't do this unless they were desperate. And the people of Dagestan already endured a very heavy first wave of recruitment when the war started. And then, of course, this is when they're coming back for the second wave of people. And needless to say, the crowd is not having any of it. Let's once again bring up sort of our ethnic groups here. This is for Dagestan. And this certainly puts the issue that uh, but, you know, the Russians are having in Baratia to uh, a whole new level. Because as you can see right up here, the people of Dagestan include a large variety of ethnicities according to the 2010 census. Northern Caucasians, including Avards, Dagens, Lagins, uh, you know, and Chechens, make up almost 75% of the population of Dagestan. 75 percent of the population is non-russian and not only that a further 21 percent of people are made up of turkic peoples just as Kumyats and are azerbaijans and only 3.5 percent are ethnic russians and if you can see here we'll bring up the we'll look at the breakdown here you know avars make up 30 percent dagans uh 17 percent all the way down Azerbaijanis. there's more Azerbaijanis that live here than there are ethnic Russians. So yeah, very, very serious issue for Russia. They don't exactly have a whole lot of people who would be friendly to them if they continue to try and exert themselves on this Republic and have it give more than it is actually able to give to the Russian state. So it seems pretty clear that Russia is trying to leverage its ethnic minorities against Ukraine in this conflict. And people are starting to take notice and not just across the world but within the country itself and as I alluded to before this is one of the fundamental divisions within Russia that is because at its core Russia has always been and still to this day is an imperial project and the reality of the Russian state is that this entire country is basically a half a millennia long imperial project to defend the indefensible borders of the Russian heartland. So as you can see here right around Moscow, this is the Russian core, this is the Russian heartland, this is where most ethnic Russians reside, and it is a indefensible mess of plains and forests and wide open spaces. And as this area grew stronger and stronger throughout history and began expanding further and further, it was able to take more and more territories seeking to find some sort of defensible barriers in which the Russian state could hunker down. And this project over the centuries led the Russians down to the Caucasus and all the way to the borders of eastern Siberia and China proper. And the fact of the matter is, is that everything that the Russian state designs is for the benefit and for the uplifting of that Russian heartland. And that generally comes at the expense of people on the peripheries. So the further and further you move away from this heartland, the less and less reason you have to stay in Moscow's orbit. And as Moscow continues to struggle in its war in Ukraine and continues to try and leverage non-Russians to fight this war, I have a strong feeling that more and more of these republics and peoples on the periphery of the Russian system are going to realize that staying within it doesn't offer them a lot of benefits. So that's the first sort of division being exacerbated by this mobilization. Let's talk about the next one, which was, which is within the Russian population itself. And that is sort of the, generally speaking, it's an urban-rural divide, but it does go a little bit deeper than that. Maybe it can be more educated. It also can be a young-old divide. Regardless, it happens to be sort of the divide of for and against the war. And people who are for the war generally come in a couple of different categories. They tend to be older, they tend to live in more rural areas, and they tend to be less educated. Whereas people who are against the war tend to be more educated, more urbanized, and younger so let us begin this segment by showing you yet another video here this is a video from the Irkutsk tusk region and this building in the background is a recruitment center so let's see what we have here i've turned off the sound here because well there are some there's some russian guys that are like mumbling in the background it's like really scratchy it's really terrible and you can hear them like shuffling with a bunch of crap so it's not worth it we're just gonna turn it off anyway as you can see buddy just ramps his car right into the door God, it looks like he's got something lit in the back there. Uh, I'm not sure what he threw up there. It didn't look like it was lit though. So anyway, he just leaves the car there. He steps away, and like this is this is incredibly dangerous, right? Like this, uh, he's not covering his face. Yes, he's at night, but there's not there's lights everywhere. He's very clearly visible, and if he were to get caught, he would be in extreme extreme danger. But he doesn't care and you know by looking at this guy he looks like he's a pretty young guy yeah he looks like he would be the kind of guy who would be drafted into this war and as you can see lights his first one lights his first molotov and uh there he goes he's off to the races and he's obviously got a lot to say here because just one molotov isn't enough he's got to put in another one and you know what you know what they say all good things comes in threes but this guy he thinks great things come in more than threes. So three isn't even enough as he lights up yet another one here to uh, continue his journey and continue his work. And you know, personally I I, I would have stopped at three, you know. I think three is good enough, but this guy he's a real king. And he's not even gonna stop before he's got one last surprise win for these guys. So he just throws almost half a dozen Molotov cocktails at this building, and then boom, there you go, the big fireball but yeah so obviously like that you would have to be extremely motivated to do something like this like especially in russia this is not like i said a uh, very safe thing to do if you were caught so not just in urgetusk this is happening right here i've got a nice little graphic this is from the institute for the study of war from september 21st to the 26th so fairly recent only a couple weeks old and as you can see you have protests happening all across russia but not only that, if you look closer, you have these dots, both the purple ones or the the dark blue ones and the teal ones. So in any case, those represent various attacks on recruitment centers and administrative buildings. And as you can see, it looks like there's probably, I'm not going to sit here and count them all for you, but it looks like there's about a dozen, maybe just under a dozen across the country. So this is happening everywhere. In any case, this is obviously going to exacerbate a serious problem within Russian society, which is... Of, the, of course, the fact that the majority of one, young people don't want to go and fight this war, but the majority of the old people do. And you know currently, you know the old people are in charge. They're usually in charge in every country, unfortunately, including these ones over here. And they're forcing them to get into the recruitment offices and fight. And a lot of young people are saying, F that. They're leaving the country. They are um, hurting themselves. <laughs> they are doing anything that they possibly can. To avoid going and fighting in this war but that isn't to say that there aren't people who are signing up and well not necessarily signing up because everybody who wants to sign up has already signed up but are more rather accepting their fates in terms of the you know recognizing the fact that they are being drafted and going to war so while yes Russian mobilization has been a disaster in so many ways and yes it has caused I don't know if it's millions, but hundreds of thousands of young, educated, and probably skilled Russians to leave the country for greener pastures, there is a cohort of Russians who have accepted their fate and are willing to go and fight on the front lines and answer the call that Vladimir Putin has put forward for them. That being said though, well yes, these guys are going to war. I don't think that they're going to be particularly enthusiastic about continuing to fight it and the status of what their gear and their army looks like when they get here. I've got another video to show you here. This has been a a pretty famous one, viral one, whatever you want to say. Certainly gone and made the rounds, but let's check it out together here. This is... But yeah, this is a a sort of rundown from a sergeant giving uh, new recruits the information that they need and what tools they're going to need.
1: And in some cases, it doesn't even give them that. Жгуты. У меня на вас-то всех жгутов не хватит. Аптечки Мужиков... нету А? Аптечки, блядь, эти, как его? Автомобильные. аптечки потрошите. Берите оттуда жгуты. Так, мужики, только не ржать. Жон, девушек, матерей просите. Прокладки. Самые дешевые прокладки плюс самые дешевые тампоны. Тампоны, знаете, Да, Прям туда водите и все, начинает разбухать и придавливать стенки. Мужики, я это все сейчас не знаю. Прокладки обязательно, ну дешевенькие, понятно? Вам туда все сгодить сейчас сырая погода. У меня там мои друзья, мои товарищи. То есть вот эту всю информацию нам скидывают, это по возможности, ребята, то-то, то-то, этого, это медицина, мужики.
0: In in a little way, I do kind of feel sorry for the lady and the position she's being put in. She doesn't look like she is enjoying what she's having to say to these recruits here, but you know, in one sense it's like she's she's not wrong, like tampons, pads, whatever, in a battlefield scenario or any scenario, not just battlefield scenario, any scenario where someone's injured and bleeding heavily, and you need a quick fix, that's 100% going to be a, a good quick fix. But, you know, that being said, when you're, you're mobilizing your recruiter, I'm not exactly sure what this lady's t- title is, is up here telling you, yeah, you're we're not really going to have med kits. Yeah, we're not going to really have the medicine and the drugs you need in case you get injured. If you want to survive, you're going to have to basically scrounge up all these ad hoc solutions from your relatives and people around you. And I can't imagine that 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 is a very reassuring thing to hear once you get to your barracks or place of, uh, you know, mobilization. Regardless, though, this is just another serious division within Russian society that is being further exacerbated by this completely disastrous special military operation. And the real question is, how much more can this system crack How brittle and fragile is the Russian system really? Well, you know, I think we're about to find out guys. We are going to see how much it can actually endure and, you know, how things have been going so far. It doesn't seem like, you know, the smart money is betting on it enduring a whole lot longer. Before we go though, let's do a very quick update on how things are going for the good guys here, the other side. And so far, honestly, things seem to be going pretty well. Obviously, we just had that big counter-offensive in the Kharkiv region over here, which, you know, they they dummied the Russians. They smoked them pretty good and retook a huge chunk of territory here. We are right now witnessing a substantial battle happening right here, once again, in the Kherson region. And I, this is like the third battle of Kherson, I suppose, because... You know, the first one is is when the Russians took it initially then there was another counteroffensive by Ukraine um, a couple weeks ago maybe maybe a month ago that um, gained some limited success but wasn't a huge breakthrough and now in this third battle they're seeing a lot more success right here particularly in these this northern region yesterday they liberated a ton of villages up here in this region and if things continue to, go badly for Russia and Kyrgyzstan I you know this to me is the linchpin of the entire operation is Kyrgyzstan if the Russians lose that I don't know how they can conceivably recover I don't know how they can keep going not only is Kyrgyzstan one probably I, I think it is the biggest I'm not sure is Mariupol bigger or is Kyrgyzstan bigger I'm not sure I I think it is the biggest city currently that the the Russians have taken and not only that it's their foothold across the Dnieper river and not only that um this area controls the water um excuse me it controls the water flow to crimea which the ukrainians turned off in 2014 when the russians annexed it in the first place and this was leading to some serious issues for the people who live there desert desert uh, excuse me desertification of the regions around it you know all around not a good not a good solution, excuse me, not a good situation to be in. And there didn't seem to be any solution to that other than, of course, actually invading the area and uh, blowing up the dam the Ukrainians built there and turning the water flow back on. And, of course, if they lose that area, all of that gain goes for nothing. And it's, uh, it's I, like I said, I just don't see how the Russians would recover from something like that. And I mean, I, I, I would assume that the Russians have large concentrations of forces here. It's probably well defended. We've heard reports that the Russians have been moving a lot of their combat-ready uh, troops to the Kyrgyzstan and Crimean region. So obviously they're planning something big there. It seems like both, both sides are planning something very big in the south. So I am going to be watching it with uh, great anticipation to see exactly what is going to happen and um, obviously, as time goes on, I'll try to do my best to update you guys and talk about any new events or anything that's happening. Before we move on to the last part of this uh, segment, I just want to talk a little bit. we got the updates over here. Let me just slide me over just a tad. Um, see if there's anything super important. We obviously have the Ukrainians. They've liberated a few villages over here in the Luhansk region. This is a very... Uh, I not know. This is a very kind of scary proclamation here by Putin, which is basically demanding and, you know, ordering that the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant be put under Russian control. This is, I believe, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. So obviously putting that under Russian control is a, you know, once again, another energy leverage card that they have. But other than that, in the last couple hours, it doesn't look like anything huge has happened various uh, missile strikes and uh, skirmishes but no big breakthroughs to note. So before we end this segment on Russian mobilization I just want to talk about you know again like I said some of the points about the Ukraine war that have been scattered around the right side of the political spectrum and to be fair most conservatives are very supportive of Ukraine they have you done a big U-turn on their support of Russia since this whole war happened and you know they are by and large you know on the right side on this issue that being said there seems to be a sizable but very loud minority and this particularly seems to be on the more maga side of the political spectrum which seems to believe that the war, that funding the Ukrainians and continuing to support Ukraine in the war is a bad thing. And they'll usually couch this in like some nonsense that they are like, you know, they just want peace. And oh, oh, we're we're worried about the price of fertilizer. We think the price of fertilizer and food is going too high. So we got to push for peace. And realistically, this has this energy has a whole lot more in common with Neville Chamberlain than Mahatma Gandhi. And let me tell you guys exactly why. And that is Putin has really shown his hand with this invasion of Ukraine. And if you think that this is all that he has in store, and just taking Ukraine is all that he wants, well, you're fucking naive. I don't I don't know what else to say there. And again, I'm gonna show you exactly why. Alright, so what the heck do I got here? Well, what I've got is this is a map produced by geopolitical analyst Peter Zihon and, and I would honestly recommend that anybody who is interested in the field of geopolitics and wants to understand how the world is going, they should really check out his work. It's very interesting and very informative. So what he has here is this is a map that represents this is the Eurasian horde lands. And each one of those blue arrows represents a gap in which armies have invaded the Russian state before. And the Russian state is obsessed with these gaps because the only way that they can ensure their safety from foreign invasions is to basically take them and stick as many armies as they can as possible. So as you can see, I've kind of got these like little tanks here. They represent where Russia would currently have to place their armies on their own border. It's a mess. It's a total mess. The, the borders they have now, you know, they talk about border gore and, and hearts of iron. It's, it is it is basically border gore. And what they really want to do is control these gaps where, again, they've been historically invaded in the past. Like, this is places where the Mongolians have driven hordes through, where the Germans have driven tanks through, where the French and Swedes have led, led columns of musketmen through so again they're they're paranoid and they're they have a historical basis to be paranoid but that being said the 21st century is not the 20th century nor the 18th or 17th centuries before then it's a little bit of a different time but they are stuck in their own ways of viewing the world so what russia would want to do is try and retake all these gaps because when they were the Soviet Union and during the Warsaw Pact era, they comfortably controlled all of them. And after the Soviet Union fell, they only controlled one, which is this one right up here at the top near Finland, where you can see that top tank. That is the White Sea Gap. So, and and if you can say that Russia has Kazakhstan under its control, which I would argue that it doesn't, it then also controls the Altai Gap, and the Central Asian Corridor. They don't really control the Caucasus because they only control one half. They want, they want to control all of the Caucasus, not just the northern half. So they don't technically control these gaps, but obviously they'd want to control them too. But the biggest play that they made was in 2014, when they annexed Crimea and officially took control of one of the second gaps. And what we can see right now is that Russia is trying in real time to take the next one, and that is the uh, Bessarabian Gap right here. This is in Romania. Once again, this is where the Ottomans would usually come through and invade Russian territory. So they are very, very keen on it. And I believe without any shadow of a doubt that if Russia's invasion of Ukraine had gone the way they hoped, and they were able to take the country quickly, Moldova would be gone. Moldova wouldn't exist anymore. We wouldn't be talking about it right now. It would have been annexed by the Russians. And then, of course, the big gaps, the most, arguably the most important ones to the Russian state and the ones that they are worried about the most are the Polish gap and the Baltic gap. Again, this is where probably the most dangerous threats to the Russians have come from in the past and they desperately want to control them. But controlling them obviously involves controlling, uh, you know, Belorussia and its entirety, plus the eastern half of Poland, and you know the Poles aren't exactly enthusiastic about that prospect. And of course, to control the Baltic Gap, they would have to control all the Baltic, um, all the Baltic countries. Again, a prospect that the Baltics are not too enthused about. So while yes, Putin isn't like Hitler in the sense that he wants to control the entire world and bring about some sort of crazy Nazi revolution or some crap like that, he does want to expand the Russian borders and secure what he sees as, you know, a good secure gap for the Russian people. But that being said, in order to do that, he's going to have to take control and control the lives of mil of hundreds of millions of non-Russians, more non-Russians than Russians and That is absolutely unacceptable, and, of course, we'll start World War III. Because if you look at this map now that we have placed these Russian armies sort of in the gaps, you can see that they are now having to place them on lots of non-Russian territory to secure them. So I very firmly believe that if things had gone differently in Ukraine and the war was not going on right now, that Russia were able to achieve their goals quickly... That there would be some sort of retooling. I don't know how long that would take—two, three, however many years Russia would want—and then they would engage in some sort of uh, saber clash. Say not saber clashing with NATO. What they do is probably what they usually do, which is small sort of escalations and incursions until they can kind of get to the point where they can justify some sort of full-scale war or retaliatory act. So we absolutely need to 100% keep funding Ukraine and giving them all the weapons and support they need, because if we don't, we are almost certainly going to run into a far greater disaster down the road. This is not a circumstance where you can appease Putin. Like I said, he's really shown his hand here. I don't think there's any question, especially if you're going to launch a full scale invasion of your neighbor, there's no question as to how, how far you might go and how far you are willing to go to enact your plans. So right now, you know, to put this, I, I guess, very forcefully and, and, and bluntly, that every Ukrainian and fighting and dying right now is Ukrainian fighting and dying and preventing a Romanian from fighting and dying in the future, or a Polish person, or a Lithuanian, or Estonian, or Finnish person. And I think these neighboring countries know that, and that is why they have been the staunchest allies and supporters of Ukraine, and kind of been the people to really cajole those who aren't as on board as they are. So let's go over some of these various uh, appeasers and what they've said, and talk about some of the crazy crap that they have said in the past. I do think that some of these people have, have toned down a little bit, considering Now that they're seeing uh, Russia gets ass handed to it, but we do have uh, a couple good quotes here. This one is from uh, the infamous Marjorie Taylor Greene, or uh, I guess I should just say Marjorie Taylor. Maybe that's something we'll we'll talk about uh, family values and they're working out so well. (laughs) You know, sorry, I just think it's hilarious that a greasy, dirty socialist like me is doing a better job in, you know, uplifting traditional family values than this psychopath. Anyway, she says that uh, you just, uh, you see Ukraine just kept poking the bear, poking the bear, which is Russia, and Russia invaded. The hard truth is there is no win for Ukraine here. Not true at all, uh, and Russia is being very successful in their invasion. Not true at all. So obviously, completely divorced from reality here. Um, you, this is obviously clear victim blaming. Ukraine did nothing to promote this war. That is a you know it's a laughable talking point to argue that Ukraine provoked this war, um, and honestly, it's kind of a dangerous one because again, if we let this kind of rhetoric get out of hand and actually gain traction, um, I do think that there is a serious, serious likelihood that you uh, that Russia and Putin would feel emboldened in the future to attack and try and gain further territory. I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time going over these quotes. Um, here's another uh, one from the Genius Mind of Candace Owens. She says that President Zelensky is a very bad character who is working with the globalists against the interests of his own people. That's once again in march of 2020 these are all after the invasion of ukraine and to me again just hilarious this idea that Zelensky is working against the interests of his own people um i would imagine that the people in ukraine are very very happy with their current president i i think he's done an absolutely phenomenal job in an extremely difficult situation i i don't think that he really could have done a whole lot better than what he's been doing I mean, I've heard some, you know, some complaints that he kind of meddled in some tactical decisions that didn't turn out very well. But ultimately, you know, he's been doing, I think, a phenomenal job as uh, president of Ukraine and, and keeping the morale and spirit of his people high. You know, if they had a different leader at the time, maybe it's possible that Ukraine could have capitulated, right? In the sense that if Great Britain had a different leader besides Winston Churchill, they might have capitulated as well. But uh, let's move on to my favorite balloon boy. We'll finish off with uh, Steve Bannon here. We've got um, uh, no Republic, oops, I don't, I'm don't. i gonna make this beer. Sorry, it's gonna look terrible if I don't. He says, no Republican should vote for any money for Ukraine, zero dollars for Ukraine. That was in March, 2020. Of course, this is um, definitely, like I said, not exactly going to be giving Ukraine the preventative medicine it needs to prevent further geopolitical disasters. And uh, not only that, right, I, honestly, I would be happy in from a political perspective if Republicans adopted this uh, talking point, because it just shows that they are losing their grip on foreign policy. You know, Republicans have been stronger than Democrats, usually, uh, historically speaking, when it comes to foreign policy. But as uh, so long as they keep these talking points up, that's going to go right down the shitter. And the last one I read, I'll read here is that every member of Conservative Inc, not really sure what that is. Maybe I'm pretty sure that's probably his like slam term for establishment conservatives or whatever. But he says every member of Conservative Inc that backs the Ukraine war is a simp. And I mean, It's just so funny, right? You know, Steve Bannon, the simpiest simp that ever simped his way out of simpville, calling people a simp for, you know, supporting a country's right to defend itself against a foreign aggressor just classic just totally gives you the kind of mentality that these people have and there was kind of one last little bit that I wanted to talk about and that is one of the things that Jordan Peterson said recently where basically he alluded to the fact that the reason why Russia invaded Ukraine is because uh, western civilization has become so degenerate that Russia had no choice but to stop it from encroaching on his borders or some crap like that and uh, this to me Represents like one of my biggest things that I wanted to do with this show and going into the show is talk about again the conservative arguments that they have. The conservatives have about five or six different arguments that they regurgitate ad nauseum, that they just kind of dress up different language to make it sound different. And at this point, living here in the most conservative part of Alberta and being surrounded by a ton of conservative people and hearing all the crap they have to say. I've heard all these arguments ad nauseum and I don't think that there is any new way that they can frame them. But the argument that uh, Peterson here is advancing is the argument that I like to call the West, the West. And anyway, this is the argument where, to, to, if you really want me to break it down further, it basically is the West used to be good, now it's bad. And, and that's really the entire crux of what they say. But ultimately i thought you could distill that argument even further to just sort of a guttural yell and to me this argument i can't believe that anybody really takes it seriously um that anybody thinks that like you know the west is committing suicide or the downfall of western civilization is upon us because usually when you break down like what they actually believe and why they believe that the west is falling it's usually nonsense like uh oh, there's social justice in academia Or, oh my god, you know, gay people have gone too far. Oh, transgender people can use their preferred pronouns. It's almost always just like superficial nonsense, which are just people who have, you know, outside the norm lifestyles trying to live and enjoy their lives. And this upsets them greatly. But the funniest part of the whole argument of the worst is that when you actually break it down and if you actually take it on face value, Western civilization fucking sucks. And what they're really saying is that Western civilization is so inflexible, so bigoted, so fragile, that it can't handle the existence of gay people and transgender people within it. And if that's actually the case, then as far as I'm concerned, see you later. You deserve to be in the dustbin of history. But what's much more realistic is the fact that that's all a bunch of nonsense and that this talking point is really just a talking point that these kind of kooks use to confuse lost men into buying into their political agenda. And that this whole idea that Western civilization is falling or committing suicide or whatever is really just a bunch of fear-mongering nonsense. Anyway, this is a Bacal seal. Isn't he cute? All right, well, that actually brings me to the end of our segment on the Ukraine war and Russian mobilization. And let's move on to the recent election in Brazil. Let's move on to another country, and that is the country of Brazil, which had a very important election. Although I will admit that I am not the foremost expert on Brazilian politics, their system is close enough to the United States where I can kind of navigate it. But they do have a couple of interesting wrinkles and and interesting little tidbits that I'll share with you guys. One thing that is interesting in Brazil is that they have compulsory voting, so you have to vote <laughs> there's not a choice and another thing that's interesting is that for the presidential elections you have to get 50% plus before you actually win the presidency so if you are kennedy who doesn't get 50% in the first round of voting you have to go to the second round of voting which is happening here but at the same time as the you know the first round of presidential voting happened on the second there was the election for the various uh it's called the chamber of deputies which is similar to the chamber of chamber of congress in the united states and the federal senate so they had those elections they have it at the same time and with that kind of context out of the way let's delve into it so we had the first round and the real interesting thing here is that the guy who was running against the incumbent uh bolsonaro bolsonaro who is seen as a far-right figure kind of a trumpian populist type of type of person seeing him not do very well in this first round of voting is very interesting to me, particularly against um, Lula, who in 2018, let's go back to kind of 2018, he did not run. He has been the president of Brazil for a little while. He had um, Haddad here run and and it was kind of people, people were kind of uh, saying, oh, it's just another term of Lula, so on and so forth. That being said, Apparently his luster has returned as coming back he has, he's made a political comeback for this election and was able to secure almost, almost that 50% mark in the first round. Let's go down here. We shall look at our results. Excuse me. Here we are. So looking at our results, we can see that Lula was able to secure 46.43% of the vote, 57 million votes. Crazy amount of votes with Bolsonaro in second place at a 43%. So that what that means essentially is that in the second round, if everyone who voted for uh, Lula votes for him again, he only needs to get 2 percentage points more to secure victory whereas Bolsonaro has a much larger hill to climb. So it's not impossible that uh, Lula loses. It is possible that Bolsonaro wins on what uh, what day is the second round? Sorry to keep bouncing back and forth on the 30th. So it is possible that he wins on the 30th, but it is uh, pretty unlikely because, like I said, voting is compulsory in Brazil. So, you know, it's not like the, the people, it's not like he's going to have trouble getting his people out to the polls. They have to come to the polls. Everybody has to come to the polls. So he doesn't need to worry about that. But you know, politics is a weird game. Anything could happen, but it looks pretty likely that he's going to win. And it is unfortunate that we are going to have to go to a second round because he, it looked like he was going to comfortably secure victory in the first round. However, the polls overestimated his support, but they also underestimated uh, Bolsonaro support who was hovering kind of on you know, the low in the high thirties type of area. But that being said, you know, it's still obviously a, a victory for the left in Brazil, but not the victory that, you know, not the outright victory that we were hoping for. I do really hope that Bolsonaro goes down. He is, seems like he's kind of a scumbag. I, to be fair, I, I haven't exactly looked through all of his policies, but talking for people from Brazil, you know it doesn't exactly seem like things are going so well down there so it's it's pretty it, it is a nice kind of blow to the to the maga movement to the you know the, this weird far right movement that is coming up across the globe it's a nice blow to see one of their figureheads take a serious political beating the bad news here for the left is unfortunately in the chamber of deputies and let me tell you guys something about the show you know i'm going to tell you guys what my biases are I'm going to tell you where I stand, but at the same time, I'm also going to try my best to tell things to you like it is. So even if you know what my biases are, I'm still going to do my best to parse things out as uh, best I can for you. So yeah, uh, and I'll give it to you straight. The news for the left in the chamber of deputies is not good. The liberal party, which is actually the right wing party, um, was able to gain a total of 66 seats. And while the sort of left-wing coalition was able to gain a little bit of little bit of uh, traction, it's nowhere near as much as the uh, liberal as the sorry the liberal party and a lot of Bolsonaro's uh, and a lot of uh, Bolsonaro-related allies. So within the Chamber of Deputies, basically the right-wing coalition managed to gain a ton of seats. And what's interesting here, and what this shows. Is that while lula is an extremely popular figure his party the you know so the workers party is not as popular and vice versa for bolsonaro who is underperforming in comparison to where his party's popularity is so while it looks like there will be a left-wing president in brazil there still will be a pretty uh tight right-wing coalition governing the chamber of deputies. So there definitely, it looks like that there will be some political, uh, you know, some some political friction there going forward. That being said, we'll have to see what happens on the 30th. Um, and And I am right now just assuming that Lula is going to win. If things were a little bit closer in this first round, we might be having a different conversation, but, you know, it's this kind of, Margin is going to be very difficult for Bolsonaro to work uh, to work up and over unless we have some kind of crazy political implosion in the next month or so uh, I, I Expect Lula to win fairly comfortably. So we'll be following that going forward I did just want to talk to you guys about this because not a lot of people are, are you know, t- Talking about it Brazil is not seen as like a you know a major player on the world stage but that being said Um, They have a huge population, they have a large economy, and not, and particularly in in food exports, they're a very, very powerful food exporting nation, and one whose politics, I think, deserves to be uh, discussed and known about, you know, for more people than just in Brazil proper. So, like I said, we'll keep up with that, and that brings us to the end of our uh, Brazil segment. Don't really have a lot to say in terms of what other people are saying about this. Like I said, not a whole lot of people have been talking about this election and covering it, but I wanted to make sure that I, like I said, I think Brazil is an important country and this election has important political ramifications. So I thought it was important to at least cover it briefly. All right there, buckaroos. Let's get started by taking a look here at the generic ballot for the 2020 midterms. This is from uh, 538. I also have a, another generic ballot here from Real Clear Politics, which gives the Republicans a larger advantage than uh, 338. I have both um, because just trying to look look around my microphone. But uh, anyway, in any case, I, I have both because there's a lot of people who don't like 538 and don't like Nate Silver because he stunk it up in the 2016 election, and that's true. He did stink it up in the 2016 election. But the reality is, uh, so did everybody, pretty much. And if anything, he stunk it up slightly less than everybody else. So you know, it's I definitely don't trust him as much as I used to. But that being said, he's one of the best data compilers out there. So he still has value in my mind. That being said, we will look at both here. So we have the Real Clear Politics generic ballot which shows a slight lead for the republicans what i think here is really interesting in the last couple days we've seen a massive increase in republican support and i'm trying to think like what could that have been what has happened really in the last couple days that have um, caused this kind of uh shoot in support or has caused this kind of upward shot in support and i i personally can't of anything off the top of my head so um, it's very interesting here to see uh, the Republicans shooting up just before the midterms on the other hand here on the 538 uh, forecast it's a little bit different you have the Democrats up by 1.1% still that being said they have gone down they used to have almost a full two points two-point advantage uh, a couple weeks ago But that has dwindled down to 1.1, just a one-point advantage. That being said, though, when you go back further and... well, this is like when Joe Biden was actually liked people. But yeah, you go back, right? Uh, This was in Afghanistan when people really started to uh, turn against him. That's August of last year. And the Republicans have been able to maintain a sizable advantage up until, of course, you have the overturning... Of Roe v. Wade which is in my opinion a massive political earthquake and just to kind of look at the um, sorry the real clear politics uh, right here yeah I'm not gonna sign into uh, Real clear politics there Google you can pound sand sorry anyway so yeah you can kind of see the same exact uh, you can see the same sort of uh, pattern happening here though the the main difference here is this big uptick in support which is not as reflected in the 538 uh the 538 forecast here although like i said it has shrunk a little bit in the last week but it's the similar the, Until dobbs of course you have a relatively uh, sizable republican lead and then it shrinks to neck and neck, and then according to real-clear politics, they were able to, the Democrats were able to open up a slight advantage until recently where it has gone back to a slight advantage for the Republicans. So needless to say, things were looking very good this year for the Republicans up until the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I don't think Republicans realized how much political capital it cost them to get that done and how much it will hurt them politically moving into the future. That being said, even though the Democrats are opening up a small advantage or you know, keeping things relatively tied depending on which forecast you're using, the Republicans are, I, I don't agree with this, slightly favored. I think that this uh, these odds do not warrant a slightly. I say that the Republicans are favored to win the House. Um, and that definitely stands, considering that gerrymandering and other uh, political tools that Republicans have used over the years have managed to secure them a decent enough advantage in the map of Congress that when they go into it, they generally speaking, if they, if Democrats and Republicans are 50 50 in terms of popular support, the Republicans will be able to win the house majority. So like some people will say, Oh, the Democrats need like 5% support to win the house. Right. Uh, You know, no no i don't think it's that high what was it let's go back i just went, i'm curious now and they're really making me dig for this one okay here perfect perfect so okay the democrats did have a a sizable sizable uh popular vote advantage by okay more just over 3% 3.1%. 3.1% and they were able to secure the smallest house majority in existence. So yeah, that's that's a tough it's a tough uh margin there for the Democrats for sure, no question, considering they fell uh, considerably from the last election where they beat the Republicans almost by 10 points in the popular vote. So Regardless, going into the House elections, the Democrats are going to need more than just a 1.1 or 1.5% advantage to eke out and maintain their majority. And I personally, I, I think it's unlikely, but you know anything is possible in politics. So going into this election, I, I don't see the Democrats winning the House. However, they do have a much better chance of winning the Senate. Let's go to the Senate projection here really quick. Is this the Senate? Okay, yes it is. So Democrats are slightly fair to win the Senate again. I think it's a little bit more than slightly uh, given these odds. The main thing though is you guys have to remember that because the Vice President is a Democrat, that all the Democrats need to get is 50 seats in the Senate and they will effectively control the Senate. So that gives them a slight advantage over the Republicans who will need 51 seats to end up controlling the Senate. So of course we have, um, the thing about the Senate though, is that a lot of the candidates who are in tough races are not necessarily the best candidates. Over here, we can go to uh, 270 to win. And we can see these are, okay, yeah. So these top ones are the ones that are considered to be most at risk of flipping. That being said, I, I mean, I don't agree with this. I think Marco Rubio is pretty, pretty sizable. I think he's got a pretty sizable lead. Um, the interesting one here is is uh, Raphael Warnock. This is in Georgia. He's currently a Democrat. And of course, he's in a tight race with Herschel Walker. That being said, Herschel Walker should be uh, running away with this, considering that Georgia is a more Republican state, although that has been changing in the past couple of years. But Herschel Walker is... I think maybe legitimately a crazy person um he says all kinds of crazy crap of course he came out recently the big news recently was that in 20 or 2009 he paid one of his mistresses for an abortion of course being a staunchly pro-life republican not exactly the best look for you not exactly a family man either that is another consistent uh, theme with a lot of these republicans that yes they tout family values Yes, family values are so, so, so important to them. But when push comes to shove, they fucking suck at them. They can't actually have family. People in their family seem to hate them. They don't want anything to do with them. Uh, Raphael Warnock and uh, Herschel Walker, like I said, right now, coin flip. That's what 270 to win has it as. Moving down, we have where are some of the big, big uh, races here course the one in pa in pennsylvania is one we are all looking at that is john fetterman versus MetMet Met oz the tv personality right now it's got kind of a lean democrat to it i do think uh fetterman will pull this one out i just because oz is a is a crappy candidate like he's 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 not campaigning very well like his ads are pretty junk like he seems like he's like one of those really, like, plastic kind of politicians that just can't really connect with people. Like, one of those people that, you know, that tries to connect with human beings but for whatever reason cannot do it. Whereas Fetterman seems like the exact opposite kind of guy, you know, like a normal human being that wears, like, normal human clothes and, like, talks to people like they're actual adults. So, yeah, I would I, I do think Fetterman will pull that one out. Um, I would be surprised if he didn't, but again, anything is possible. Here's a really interesting one right here in Wisconsin, right? Uh, we've got Ron Johnson running again, and slightly favored to win, but that would be an interesting flip for the Democrats if they could take Wisconsin. <laughs> but that being said, I, I do think, and and most people seem to think, is that the Democrats will eke it out, probably with 50 seats, maybe 51. <laughs> and of course, here's all the... Uh, the uh, guys are up for election which are are safe. Rand Paul is running again. He's probably yeah, Rand Paul's going to win and his uh his uh state he's going to win in Kentucky there. But the, the, so, here where's that guy from Louisiana? That that was Darius John Kennedy. <laughs> the the, the call crackhead. <laughs> I, I really hope that uh that that will um diminish his chances but of course he's in he's in Louisiana so uh so the crackheads are going to be is the ones coming out and voting for him. But yeah, just to kind of run back to the point of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I did want to touch a little bit on it because, like I said, the Republicans, I think, have underestimated how much political capital this will cost them and how much it will hurt them. Because, particularly in the the fickle suburbs, which have become more and more a defining feature in U.S. politics, these fickle suburbs, the people most apt to change their vote happen to be women who live in these suburbs aren't exactly enthusiastic about the idea of Roe v. Wade being overturned this was a big wake-up call for a lot of people on the left because this is the first time at least in my lifetime that we've really seen rights being rolled back and it's funny I was having a, a conversation with a conservative friend uh the other day about this and he was talking about like he was trying to like debate club this whole thing like he's like uh you know um, they aren't really ruling back rights because it's a poor legal decision that doesn't, you know, actually enshrine these rights and so on and so forth. And I'm like, just like, I'm like, like I showed down. I'm like, dude, listen, like you can sit here, you can try and do the debate club. You can try and do the mental gymnastics, but realistically, you know, a woman and anywhere in the United States, really, but a woman in the United States is going to look at the decision and say, I have less rights than I did, you know, 2 3 months ago. And that is a political reality for them which will impact the way they vote in the future. And yeah, we are seeing it now. We have been tracking the issue of abortion in the United States long enough to see that after this decision, nobody's opinion really changed. It generally is a 60 40 split. Even here in Canada where there are no abortions, Uh, yeah excuse me there are no restrictions on abortion meaning that in theory it would be legal to abort a child at nine months it never actually happens no abortion clinic will ever actually do it and no doctor will do it again unless there is some serious serious medical issue and the real thing for Republicans is that the vast majority of women are going to be pro-abortion in most circumstances because here's the thing right you guys know I have a kid And when my wife was pregnant I learned one very important thing and that is that our sperm fucks a woman's body right up transformation she has to undergo to carry a child to term is an incredible bodily transformation that you know as a guy we we just have no reference for man in a lot of cases that transformation can carry a lot of medical and and serious uh, issues you know, the number one cause of you know, women dying before modern medicine was childbirth. And human childbirth is, uh, it's a messy and dangerous process, even now with modern medicine. And not only that, some of the transformations that a woman will endure after pregnancy might alter her body forever. And she may never be the same. And knowing that, I don't think that there's any way you can force a woman to undergo this bodily transformation. You know, she has to want and be ready for it because it's a serious, serious thing. And this is another reason why this whole talking point of like, you know, nine month abortions or whatever being a serious issue is total nonsense because no woman is ever going to wait that long to have an abortion. By that time, the transformation is virtually done. The entire difficult time of the pregnancy is already done. You know, they're not going to sit there and go through the morning sickness and go through the cramps and go through all the hormonal changes just to be like, you know what, now that that's all done, you know, see you later. So, yeah, it's a serious issue that is going to impact the way women vote and think about politics in the United States for years to come. And uh, I hope the Republicans are ready to deal with the ramifications of that and while i don't think that we're going to see the big sweep like michael moore was on bill Marsh show predicting some big democrat sweep i'm not that optimistic but i certainly do think that we are in a very different political climate before that decision came down and now the republicans are in a lot worse position politically than they were six months ago and well with that everybody we have come to the end of our first episode of chatter on the skull so i want to thank you guys for watching This has been the comrade. I hope you enjoyed what we talked about today. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you guys have anything you want to talk about in tomorrow's episode, want to leave some comments, want to respond to anything that I have to say, I'm happy to hear it all in the comments below. I'm also going to leave a link to the discord in the pinned comment. It's a great way to get a hold of me. And especially if you want to ask me questions or bring up ideas and material for the show, some of the material we talked about today, I actually was informed about by members of the Discord. So, big shout out to all of them for helping keep me in the loop and keeping me informed about what's going on. So, yeah, I can't wait to hear from you guys. I can't wait to hear your opinions on the show. Honestly, this has been creating this show has been some of the most fun I've had in a long time. And it, of course, gives me the opportunity to talk about things which are close to me and I, I care a lot about. So, with that being said, this has been Decomrade. Signing off for now. Until next time, you guys take care.